Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, November 27th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, back from the tryptophan tireds of Thanksgiving weekend. You still got leftovers left, Eno? Just a tiny bit. Made a couple sandwiches, had a bunch of turkey soup. Uh, just a little bit left. The doggies, uh, we, we put some chicken in for the broth, you know, and then it's not so suitable for humans. The dogs are still eating on that, on that turkey. So, uh, yeah, we, we had a great time. Uh, I learned a couple things. Um, I don't think I'm going to buy a butterball turkey next year. I bought a butterball turkey and then salt brined dry brined it. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, if Reddit is to be believed... Uh, and yes, there are, of course, Reddits about these sort of things. If Reddit is to be believed, uh, you can dry brine uh, a butterball. However, it is filled with salt water, basically, to A, make it juicier, and B, perhaps, sell it at a heavier price. Ah, yes. Uh, gaming the system a little bit there. To, yeah. to- so I did, uh, uh, after our last podcast, uh, have a little freak out. <laughs> Uh, because I thought I had a 21 pound turkey that was still in the freezer on Tuesday, was it? You asked me on Tuesday afternoon, it was about three o'clock my time. And you said, uh, when should I take the turkey out of the freezer? It's like 21 pounds. I just looked at you and I was like, I don't know, like four days ago, we looked it up and it was like, yeah, "Yeah, the weekend. We Googled it and said it takes six days to thaw. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) I like immediately closed the computer and ran. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a hack that I found this year. It was the first time we ever made Thanksgiving at my house because usually we go to either my parents or Steph's parents. We come to your house when we lived in California. It was very kind of you and your family to include us a couple of years ago when we were there. And uh, so we actually did make our own turkey, but we kind of realized that last minute and in in fear of not having a full bird that was ready, uh, one of the grocery stores here actually lets you buy whatever combination of turkey parts that you want. So we bought a couple breasts, a couple thighs, a couple legs, a couple wings, and probably paid more per pound. I know you can basically get the turkey for free if you buy all the other stuff and do it, you know, whatever grocery store hacks are out there. But it made the prep a lot easier. It also made it easier for us to buy a smaller amount of turkey for the group that we had. So I uh, hope everybody out there enjoyed the holiday. The last thing we had was stuffing. We I, I made way too much stuffing. So we, we had that left over still as of Monday. But everything else turned out great. Homemade cranberries. That was my uh, discovery of the year. It, it makes all the difference in the world. I, I've never been a fan of the gelatinous canned stuff. But if you uh, you make your own and you get some green apples in there, some Granny Smith apples, a little bit of orange juice, turns out real, real nice. Mm, so nice. big recommendation. Also, taking the stuffing and throwing it in your soup is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Because you get all that taste and then it, it kind of softens and stuff. And it's a different, different, different approach. 
One uh, piece of advice for anybody listening: Do not spatchcock in front of the family. Oh come uh, on, man! You didn't you didn't know that that was going to be traumatic for the children? Oh yes, Calvin was like, "What are you doing?" It's <laughs> like I'm spatchcocking. He's like, "That is so gross! I'm not eating that." And I'm like, "Well, no, you're not eating this neck that I'm pulling out of the out of the bird, and don't listen while I crack its breastbone." <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that. That was the other big tip of the year that people have been throwing out for a few years now. That's definitely if you can do it, it's a good way to prepare the bird if you're doing the whole bird. So for the rest of your turkey tips, consult the appropriate subreddit. We will uh, reserve turkey tips for next year. <laughs> you saw me. I I texted. Did you see the text? Uh, the, the tweet I sent back at you when you passed out on the ground. <laughs> yeah. You're just done. Trip to fan, baby. <laughs> laying I mean, there with I started LaCroix. cooking at like eight. You know? <laughs> I was done on a lot of different levels. I have increased respect every year for everyone that's ever prepared Thanksgiving dinners because the more I have to do, the more I realize it is a ton of work. How hard I was is. on dishes like all day. Like that was that was my mm. role. I was cleaning up. My wife, and my mother-in-law were kind of frantically putting all the stuff together. And I was just trying to keep the kitchen clean so the next dish could go in because, again, amateur hour. We didn't really know what we were doing. We're not one of those houses that has like three ovens like that. That would make things a little easier if you got the space, but uh, we're not those people. So, again, more turkey tips coming next November. You have that to look forward to next year. A couple things on this episode. First and foremost, if you have not subscribed to our YouTube page, you should do that. We'd really appreciate it. If you're already watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button, barrel up on the like button on this video. And then, of course, the opposite spiel. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you do that. It makes us feel good. It also makes our bosses happy, which you know this time of year could be really good for us. So, Please take a moment and leave us a nice rating and review. Quick update about the show. Next week, we're in Nashville for the winter meetings. Nashville, one of my favorite cities to visit, so I'm excited that it's there this year, not in like Orlando or one of the other places they go that isn't quite as fun. Two episodes coming out next week. Scheduling them for Tuesday and Thursday, that is written in pencil because who knows what will happen between now and then. If we need to release an episode on Monday, we'll do an episode on Monday. If we're going to do Monday, Tuesday, we'll do that instead. But two episodes coming next week from Nashville. Uh, so we're really excited about that. And it seems like things are moving along at a nice pace so far. You know, Sonny Gray lands with the Cardinals. The Athletics' Ken Rosenthal has a report they'll have a deal hammered out later on Monday. We're seeing three years and $75 million. So the Cardinals have really rebuilt this rotation in the first month of the offseason with Gray being the big addition and Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson being their previous additions to sort of just fortify the back end with some innings. As far as Gray goes, I had a, a predictions episode with Will Salmon last week in the Athletic Baseball Show feed. I thought the Rangers might actually be the team that would swoop in on Gray, and that was with an assumption that Jordan Montgomery might go somewhere else. Who knows how that all plays out. Reason being, the Rangers have often shopped in the bucket in which I placed Sonny Gray, the oft-injured starter, the talented but oft-injured starter. Uh, 439 innings since the start of 2021, similar to Blake Snell, actually, who's at 436 and two-thirds, and that's 85 and a third less than Jordan Montgomery. So I just thought, given all the guys the Rangers have been adding over the years, this might be their fit. But instead, $25 million per to be probably the best starter in St. Louis by a healthy margin. So curious what you think about this move for Sonny Gray getting out of target field and moving into Bush Stadium. 
Yeah, recency bias is funny because I, before I looked at the rundown, I I did not have Sonny Gray in his and the same sort of injury risk bucket as uh, as Blake Snell, but you know they're right there with each other, innings upon innings. Also, both coming off of 180 innings, although Sonny Gray is older, uh, so you might expect uh, just a little bit more risk there with the health. But I just like I like him so much because. He has an elite breaking ball. It's not the curveball anymore. I think it's the sweeper now. But uh, in any case, he's a guy who can spin it. I think we've shown a little bit that guys who can spin it age a little bit better. And I think that's been shown in the research. But also just anecdotally, if you think of the Adam Wainwrights, Rich Hills, I think there's a lot of guys uh, who over uh, over time have outperformed at the at latter end of their careers. And usually, I think elite breaking ball you know the nice thing about Sonny Gray is his fastball is not quite in the like you know Wainwright end of career uh, uh, status you know he I think he was like 92 eight this year um and that's not that's below average uh, for a starter these days but it's not uh you know it's not where I mean like Wayne it was like 87 the last couple of years so like it's not down there and by stuff plus his fastball still rates as above average it's become a cut ride fastball now uh, which means that it has a little bit of cut to it everything he does has cut to it you know he's kind of one of those guys um and um i just like that he he's changed his pitches over time he's added pitches that's that's i think important uh, he has different pitches he can he can if he, he can go to if the sweeper gets overused he kind of showed a little bit of that in the playoffs uh, maybe he can go back to the curve some uh, is too fastball I mean I just think he's going to age well and if you just take what's interesting to me also is if you take a step back and look at the shape of the off season and what I thought might happen in the past you kind of were waiting on the top guys to set the market. And then people could slot in and be like, okay, I'm not going to get the highest AV. I'm not going to get this, but we need to know how much, you know, a dollar per win is. We need to know how much the, the top guy's going to go for. We need to see Yamamoto go, you know, before Snell will sign because Snell will sign for a little bit less. And then Sonny Gray signs for a little bit less. But I think what we're seeing is a little bit, I have this piece in my, um, in my folder, ideas folder that I've never done, but uh, it's titled, is it collusion if the robots did it? <laughs> and so basically I, I had this like moment of awakening when i looked at sunny gray i just took his projection i aged it a half a win over the next two years so his projection is 3.3 wins on steamer and you, i aged it half a win added it all together and multiplied it by nine million dollars per win and i got 75 <laughs> i think it's collusion if you program your robots all the same way <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of crazy. So, in in essence, if that's the deal, like everybody's just gonna get at most two numbers to choose from. And I bet you, if we, you know, if we could get Sunny Gray's agent on here and give him some truth serum, he'd be like, <laughs> he'd be like, yeah, really early on, we realized three and seventy five was the offer, and we had three and seventy five from like three different teams, and. He picked. He chose the Cardinals. <laughs> you should put Agent Truth Serum in your ideas folder because <laughs> yeah. that that would be amazing. Would be fantastic. <laughs> I feel like I've had one interaction at the winter meetings. This is probably ten years ago with an agent who, on his own, gave himself Truth Serum, 
and <laughs> alcohol got very loose lipped <laughs> about a bunch of stuff. Some of it was actually factually inaccurate, like verifiably like <laughs> that happens with alcohol. I was like, these guys weren't actually drafted the same year. So you didn't pull that off. But yeah, <laughs> I just found that fascinating because uh, the amount of information that they're holding and that they've <laughs> they've gathered over the years, it's it's pretty interesting Their perspective too. you know, like being pro labor, but not actually being labor themselves. And- right, right. Yeah, and I think at the time there was a, a player that this this agent represented. He threw a number out for what he wanted for an extension, and I think I may have even said it out loud. I said, "That's not enough." <laughs> I just it's like you got to get more than that. And <laughs> the player did get more than that. Had a better career than even his agent expected. We will hide. <laughs> we'll hide all identities in this case because uh, yeah. that is a horrible game of guess who. But anyway, agent this is part of why here. I love the winter meetings. By the way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like that was a phase of life where I could stay up late enough to to get that insight. I don't know. Don't know if I'm going to collect anything quite like that. I'll leave that to you. That'll be uh, your wheelhouse. We'll see. We'll see. You know, even I've been uh, not going staying up as late. The the latest I stayed up at some point, I was uh, like having shots with like Bruce Bochy and Gary Sheffield. (laughs) Why? Again, winter meetings. Like, there's no other situation. I can't. Where I that can't claim that like I had their attention. You were just there. I was like, you know, we were best of buds, but like we were, we were definitely sharing some liquids. You were just adjacent to each of them. They were they were flanking you on the two sides, and it's just a coincidence. Yeah. You looked around. You're like, oh, stuck in the middle. Like, wow, huh. this is crazy. Okay, <laughs> three shots of Jameson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as Sonny Gray goes, the uh, early draft market has been pretty kind to him, I think, relative to recent seasons. I, Sonny Gray years ago would get the top 100 overall treatment in his early Oakland days. And I think ever since then, the combination of injuries that he's dealt with has always kind of held the price back. And it seems like I'm always in in the down years. If Sonny Gray misses time, I believe in the skills. I think he's a good pitcher. I tend to invest. If Sonny Gray stays healthy, like he just did in 2023, mm. I'm a little less likely to pay the freight. So your your would you rather's in this case, right around that pick 125 range among starters, you've got Gray versus Hunter Green, Max mm. Scherzer, Chris Bassett, mm. and Jordan Montgomery. And I think it's really interesting because the last two, Montgomery and Bassett, they're to me very similar in what they bring to the table. It's innings, a oh, slightly yeah. lower K rate, volume is good, volume plays, but the other but guys you could be buying more. high on both those guys too. You could be. Yeah. Because, you know, when it comes to, you know, big innings, not as big stuff, um, you you can have really great seasons. Like remember the Miles Michaelis season? It was like two seasons ago. Or you know what I mean? And then you don't necessarily follow that up either. So I, I will tell you that I tend towards the Hunter Green, Sonny Gray bucket where I'm like, at least when they're pitching for me, I'm pretty sure they're going to be good, right? Um, whereas that does get me in trouble, you know, because the, there's not a lot of innings in there. What I would like to tell myself going into drafts is get one of each bucket, you know, pair of Sonny Gray. If Hunter Green goes first, take Sonny, Green, Sonny Gray second. And if Jordan Montgomery goes first, take Chris Bassett second, you know, and come away hopefully with some innings and some upside. I don't know. A question about Hunter Green. The results just have not been good, right? The stuff is fantastic. It's easy to see it when you watch him. You see a K rate above 30% 
for a guy in his first 237 big league innings. We love to see that. The walk rate's a little high, but it's not atrocious. Like 9.3%, you can live with that. The park boosts home runs, and he's had a home run problem so far. Lost time is kind of cooked into these first two seasons, especially 2023. It kind of feels like you're buying a lot of improvement, even though you're getting a great strikeout floor if you're taking Sonny Gray, or if you're taking Hunter Green, rather, where he's currently going. Like you're you're paying for the improvement. You're paying for a yeah. lot of improvement like we haven't to, seen he yet. He has to improve in order to be worth that. I number. mean, he has to improve by quite a bit, I think, to return full value around the pick 125 range. I mean, even, even his like sort of standard projections, you know, 425 ERA, uh, that's an, that would be an improvement. It would be mm-hmm. better than he's ever done. Uh, but it also wouldn't be a, a, amazing for, uh, right? That wouldn't be amazing for, uh, for fantasy. The stuff plus projections have a four ERA. Ooh, so, okay. Now you're now you're talking a little bit better. Four ERA with you know eleven plus strikeouts per nine. Now that that's what people are buying, and those are projections, which is a supposedly a sober look at it, not just being like, but what if he you know really took off? Um, but I understand your question, and I think I would have gray above green uh, just because he's demonstrated it. Yeah, and it's not like either of them has demonstrated you know innings year after year. Right, right. And I, I do think the the big part of it is that we talk about home run rates all the time. And if that home run rate for green has been running a little on the high side, you can take a little bit of home run rate improvement. That could go a long way. Underlying skills otherwise being pretty solid. It's easy to see where the projections get some of that optimism from. But man, they got to be right if uh, if you're going to pay full freight again this year for, for Hunter Green. Again, great strikeout floor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We got another move, though. The Tigers get in on the fun. Kenta Maeda is headed to Detroit. It's two years, $26 million, uh, kind of from the next tier down as far as expectations go. Similar injury concerns, though, to Sonny Gray, I would say, in Maeda's case, a little scarier because he's a few years older and because it was an elbow surgery that kept him out more recently, whereas Gray, it's kind of like back, hamstring, a lot of other stuff that isn't necessarily shoulder elbow related. I don't think it's been surgery. Yeah, so you have that as sort of the extra concern. Now with Maeda, I think the the fun part from a fantasy perspective is it's easier to stream him in Detroit. I know I saw our friend Todd Zola put out a tweet saying it was pretty much a neutral shift from Target Field to Comerica. I disagree with that a little bit just because of the home run park factors in particular. The huge improvement there. Comerica is the best park in baseball for a starting pitcher, for any pitcher to be in from a home run rate perspective. 
Target field is kind of middle of the pack. That's an issue for Maeda as his fastball has declined. Uh, you can see uh, a little bit of an increase in the home run rate. He used to kind of sit, you know, 0. 0.9, 1.2. And last year was his uh, tied for his highest ever, 1.47 home runs per nine. I think that's tied mostly into the fastball decline. Uh, and that's that's happened in velo and shape and just over time with the surgeries um, and it's interesting to me to see Sonny Gray uh, had the third best fastball stuff plus uh, of any free agent starter. And uh, Kenta Maeda, basically the worst, uh, the only, it's kind of hard because they, you know, people have sinkers and fastballs. So like, w- which one am I counting? But any, the in Kenta Maeda territory is Hunjin Ryu, who like threw like 88 last year. Um, and Zach Granke who also threw 88 last year. So, you know, he's in a bad bucket when it comes to fastball stuff plus. And it's it's possible that fastball stuff plus should be valued higher than anything else because so much of the arsenal kind of comes away from the fastball. You know, the best breaking ball you can throw is defined by what your fastball does. You know, your best changeup you can throw is defined by what your fastball does. The better the velo is on the fastball, the harder it is for people to adjust to the breaking ball and the and the and the and the changeup. So um I think that's a big reason why you see such a big dollar difference between Gray and Maeda. Because overall stuff plus actually favors Maeda because stuff plus loves his his splitter. But if you like if you just think about pitching like if the fastball's 86 and the splitter's 80, like, is that going to work? Yeah. You know? it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on, on locating really, really well. But yeah. I do think the park offsets some of the potential catastrophic damage, at least the home park. And the risk was totally different. Two and 24 is, you know, for the Tigers, the, 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 what they paid for it is totally different. You know, that's very different than three and 75. Two and 24 is. Maybe it'll work out. If it doesn't, we got you know twelve buck, twelve million on our on our roster next year that we're not that you know and that's not playing for us. You know that's that's that happens to most teams at some point, and it mirrors. I think you have this on the rundown, so I'm stealing this from you. But it mirrors the uh, it mirrors the giant signing. Hundred so percent. A former former giant manager pulling out the sort of Sean Manaya, Carlos Rodon, you know. Maybe he's guaranteeing the second year, but a lot of these contracts have been one and twelve with an option for a second year. You know, this one he's just okay, fine. I'll just give you the second year. Yeah, yeah. Two for twenty-four, as you said, not the two for twenty-six that you see on the screen. Typo. EDVR first one of mm-hmm. November. Yeah, not even close to the first one. Probably like that. But it's, it's very beautiful. I like the. Chrono. It looks nice, but it's uh, it's incorrect. <laughs> but it's factually incorrect. <laughs> nice job. I do know the difference between a four and a six. If anyone's concerned, I, I, I still still understand there's difference in those two numbers. Do you think this means anything? Like, do you think this means that Luis Severino gets a two year deal? Does he want a two year deal? Mm. Maybe Luis Severino's in a different package. He's like, I don't want the two year deal. I just want the one year deal. You know, and get back out there. Yeah, this is where the age would factor in, right? If you're Maeda, you want the second guaranteed year because you're hitting that point in your career. Could where be the last. Probably the last multi-year deal you're going to get. Severino being 29 years old right now. He turns 30 in February. Could probably hit the four-year deal if he comes on a one-year deal this year, crushes it somewhere, 
and then goes back into free agency next tries winter. Tries to do like the Robbie Ray, Kevin Gossman deal where he like signs for a year, has a good year, and then gets the maybe even the five and 100, one, you know, five, 120, 111. Yeah, so much about the the interest level for me and Luis Severino, and it's probably true for many people, it's where he signs, right? If he ends up with one of our four to six orgs that we really, really trust with pitching, big thumbs up, two thumbs up, where everyone's going to like Some him. Parks creep could up. really help too, I think. Like, you know, it, just everything, when you're in New York, everything is just a higher wire act. Like, his fastball didn't drop that much velo. It didn't drop that much shape. Like, he, by stuff, he should have been okay. But just being a little bit worse and being in New York and facing those offenses and having that that outfield dimensions, I could see being interested in them, even though the Pittsburgh Pirates don't have, like, an amazing track record recently. They've been developing some guys. Keller's gotten better, better under their watch. Oviedo got a little bit better before... Eh. You know, some news on him. He has Tommy John. But, uh, like, if he went to uh, the Pirates, I think I'd be pretty optimistic about what he could do just because the park factor would at least help him there. Like, the Cardinals, the Giants, I would love for him to end up there. It would just, I would just be more interested because I think it would just give him a softer landing spot. He could do, he could be who he was last year in Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and St. Louis and be useful, probably. I think he'd at least be a home streamer for the most part. If, if the stuff was as good as it was last year, I, I wonder what's going to happen with the Twins. Are, are they a possible can, you know, candidate for signing Severino? Because right now, you know, with Gray gone, Maeda gone, I assume they're going to add someone for depth. It's Pablo Lopez, Joe Ryan, Bailey Ober, Chris Paddock, Louis Varland. You got Simeon Woods Richardson, probably. It's like post surgery paddock. And Louis, Louis Varland, who had been kind of in and out of the bullpen a little bit, mm-hmm. and Simeon Woods Richardson himself. So, like, I would love to add Paddock, Varland, and Wood Richardson together and ask for like 180, 200 innings from the three of them. Mm. So that means you need one more veteran to help chew up some innings and maybe one more to put in that top three. It really depends on how you feel about Bailey Ober. If you trust Bailey Ober, in a playoff series to be your third starter, then it's maybe two depth arms. If you don't... For what it's worth, they did not start Joe Ryan in the playoffs, did they? God. Or they gave him like two innings or something? Joe Ryan had an injury late in the year, if memory serves me right. I remember having to manage him pretty carefully. He came back, though. Yeah. He came back, though. Yeah, they gave him like a, a game three start where, you know, he... Uh, that groin groin injury late in the year. Now he was pitching. He was pitching regular innings in September, so the in, the injury wasn't holding him back in October. At least the same. They injury just didn't the really trust him because of the home runner issue. I think. Yeah, and, and he's tough. I mean, talk about your your difficult evaluations for next year. Thirty two home runs allowed in one hundred and sixty one and two thirds innings for Joe Ryan last year. ERA swelled up to four fifty one, and things started off really well. There was a point. I think it was in late June. Joe Ryan had a 298 ERA and a .91 whip. That was coming off of a complete game shutout with 9Ks against the Red Sox on June 22nd. Things really, really turned after that for him. Yeah, I could see a Severino or Frankie Montas type thing for the Twins where they're like, this is our shot at adding someone at the top. And then maybe at the back end, even someone as boring as Martin Perez. And I don't mean, I'm not trying to be rude. Send him back to Minnesota again. I'm just... But just like, you know, put put him on the five. And if you don't like what you see anymore, then, you know, you call up Simeon Woods Richardson or something, you know? 
I think if so, that would be that's like my that's like a budget version of my uh, the fantasy thing where I'm like I want one of the upside bin and one of the innings bin. <laughs> I think they may be interested in some other guys that are kind of clustered with Maeda ADP wise. You got Michael Waka in that range, mm. Seth Lugo's in there. Those kind of seem like twins guys that could end up being your third best starter if it works. And Seth, Seth Lugo is like legitimately my favorite remaining free agent starting pitcher in terms of like how much I think it'll cost and how good he'll be. And like, I I would give Seth Lugo, I wouldn't give Seth Lugo the full Sonny Gray money, but I would, I would think of him in a similar way. Cause think about it. Like what's the problem with Seth Lugo? You don't think the innings are going to be great. Yeah. Or you're worried about the innings. Well, you should be worried about the innings with Sonny Gray. What's the best thing about Seth Lugo? He can spin it and he's got an elite breaking ball. I don't know. I think he's not that far off of of uh, of uh, Sonny Gray. And I look at Lugo, and I I feel so much of like a, a giant style contract for him. Two for twenty eight, three for forty, something like that, or something with options built in, and and it's you know within the range of outcomes, and depending on where he lands, still could be a really good reliever if it doesn't work as a starter. But it worked really well as a starter this year. Like that's that's a pretty good floor, and I think I'd rather. I'd rather go that route with Lugo than with Waka because I feel like we've had conversations about Michael Waka, like going back to previous podcasts we did at other jobs. Like, is this going to be the adjustment? Is <laughs> this going to be the year? Is Waka is finally going to do it? Good is that is Joe Flacco elite? Oh baseball? God, it's a, it is. It's <laughs> thankfully you know we don't have the Joe Flacco conversations going on anymore. But man, like Waka's still only thirty two years old. This could be happening for five more years. But it's a guy yeah. that. I've described him as a pitcher that everybody's interested in. He's pitched for five different teams the last five seasons, going from the Cards to the Mets to the Rays to the Red Sox to the Padres, showing some flashes, which keeps teams interested again. But nobody... Seth Lugo is pitching all those places? Waka pitched in all those places. Oh, Lugo was just like, the two stops, I think, between the Mets and the Padres. I don't think he had a third stop. I don't cereal this morning. No. I don't remember Seth Lugo with the Cardinals. No, no. Seth Lugo has not pitched with the Cardinals. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Walker. He's pitched all over. He, you know, I kind of think of Michael Walker almost in the Wade Miley bin, which is like good changeup, has, you know, cutter changeup. They have similar styles, you know, cutter changeup. Uh over uh, like better than you th- might think when they're bad and not as good as you think when they're coming off a good season <laughs> yeah and, and i think when you when you look at the end of the season too there's a few really nice starts from waka where he carved up a you know a husk of a white Sox lineup a, a cardinals team that had given up by september like just you can really get duped if you look at some of those those final starts and kind of put those into the appropriate context. I think he's a useful pitcher. I just don't know if there's anything more than what we just saw from him in San Diego. Oh my goodness, look at that. He's finished with the White Sox, Cardinals, and Rockies at home. Yeah. And his worst start in the last four was at LA. That's, a, that's sort of amazing. Yeah, so... You know, the usual tread carefully applies. He'll do better than he would have done with that option for sure, and deservedly so, because the ratios have been good each of these last two seasons between the Red Sox and the Padres. But I think I'm with you as far as preferring Lugo to Waka and being really curious as to what Lugo ends up getting uh, as a free agent here this winter. Let's get to this trade. and This is not surprising at all. The Mariners made a trade. Uh, Eugenio Suarez goes to the D-backs as a part of this deal, and Carlos Vargas, kind of an interesting relief arm, and then Sebi Zavala, uh, almost certainly the 
seldom used backup catcher for Cal Raleigh in 2024 going back to Seattle as a it part of this like, deal. Uh, actually, the return is so light that I would say that this is... Uh, it's not a salary dump, but they got something back. But it's like they didn't want to necessarily pay the salary for this kind of production. I think that's more or less why they made this move. But I also wondered, so we talked about Luis Arias in the last episode looking like a small side platoon bat when Suarez was still on this depth chart and thinking about how much they played him in 2023. I wonder if this puts the Mariners in the market for Matt Chapman or possibly Jamer Candelario, who's sort of like everybody's fallback option at third base if they miss out on Chapman. Chapman, I think, is one of those guys that will end up being a solid free agent signing, even if the bat is slowly going into decline. Uh, We talked about it a lot at first pitch Arizona. The quality of contact was there in terms of hard hit rate and barrel rate, but he was not pulling his barrels consistently. So if you believe that Matt Chapman can fix that, then the offense can come back in a huge way. And he's still a great defender at third base, which is part of why I think the multi-year, three, four-year deal for big money totally makes sense. Suarez is at least an upgrade for the Diamondbacks. You know, you think about what they did at third base between Evan Longoria, Emmanuel Rivera. That group of third basemen, which includes a few other players that rotated through the spot, hit 234 with a 304 OBP and a 340 slug in 2023. They hit 10 home runs from that position. Suarez at least gives them thump at a minimum, should be in the heart of that order. Like I feel feel like this is a pretty solid move for him. It gives him one more season to probably be an everyday player or very close to it. Maybe the complicating factor here is Jordan Lawler. If Jordan Lawler is up on the big league roster all season or for most of the season, Geraldo Perdomo is not going to go away. So you have to play him somewhere. So maybe that eats into Suarez's playing time a little, but they got some flexibility with DH. So all in all, I think this is kind of a big win for Suarez, even though... The lineup context, the park, you know, there might not be a massive upgrade there. The playing time just seems more stable for him now. Yeah, and, I, and I'm and i wondering with the sort of shape of the Diamondbacks minor leagues and what they've got going, if they shouldn't be considered a front runner for Eloy Jimenez uh, in, in trade talks because, uh, you know... I don't love uh, Jake McCarthy myself, but uh, you know, just looking at past deals, a deal with Jake McCarthy, Jake McCarthy, and maybe even like put Dominic Fletcher in as well. No, oh, yeah, you know, of course, put Jake McCarthy and Dominic Fletcher together, and and maybe some lower minors guys, and you, if you get Eloy Jimenez, then then you're like, woof, like this is this is a legit thing. You know, now Perdomo and Lawler, like, that's just, that's our safety blanket. You know, we've got two athletic guys. Should we bring up Lawler and he plays third and Suarez plays DH and Eloy plays some outfield or, you know, or we just put Perdomo and Lawler on here and every time Cattell Marte is hurt, we have a second baseman or Perdomo, you know, starts taking some some uh, center field reps so that we can, you know, do things that, that way. Like, I don't know. I think I leave Perdomo and Lawler alone. And I say, these guys are both going to help us next year. And, you know, and then I can play around with the outfield a little bit and see if I can get more offense on this team. Because I think that's what they they kind of need. I mean, it, I know they went to the World Series, but this wasn't like the best roster in the National League. No. So they need to keep improving. And I think they will. I, I think they, they've got, you know, between Lawler and and. 
the system's a little tricky to trade with right now because a lot of the players that you might have wanted have graduated and are kind of a key part of what they're doing right now, mostly the young pitching. I don't know if they would move Tommy Troy. Drew Jones, of course, just had a, a brutal 2023 from like every possible facet. Would you trade Drew, Drew Jones away, kind of sell low via trade to add someone like Eloy Jimenez or add someone else? Maybe. That's that's kind of a fascinating path they could consider. Uh, but I think there's a few different ways you can upgrade this roster and maybe not blocking the DH spot would be their best choice given that Suarez is there. Because if you can use Suarez part-time at third base, the rest of the time at DH, and keep some of those younger, more athletic guys on the infield regularly, I think that gives you a better all-around starting nine most days. Yeah, I mean, the good news about this team organizationally and, and in terms of the future is they're great at the middle. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have found uh, solutions up the middle. I'm counting Alec Thomas because I think defensively, at least, uh, he's he's a plus in center and uh, he can at least hold water for them. But if you put Corbin in center, you know it hurts you arm wise, but I think he can also play center. So um, you know they seem pretty good up the middle, and what they need are you know add some back end starters maybe have some of the guys they're developing turn out better you know in terms of pitching development you know uh you know um maybe add to that bullpen but these are things that uh yes every team's trying to do but like uh are not the hardest things in the world yeah doable doable adjustments to continue getting better and i like suarez suarez is better just like you said is a better solution for them at third not everyone can sign Matt Chapman. Not everyone can sign Jamer Candelario. So just solving the problem without going into the free agent bin is probably a good move. So I'm uh, curious to see just how it plays out for Suarez. I, I think what we saw last year in 2023, I think it's a pretty good indication of like where the projection should go for 2024. Low average, good OBP, not great OBP, big time power, pretty good run production. So long as he can avoid injuries, max volume player uh, from a oatmeal bargain bin corner infield perspective i'm thinking about early drafts i might do one next week while we're in nashville maybe but they're slow drafts that's the problem i don't want to do a slow draft i want to sit down and just knock a draft out in like two and a half hours mm-hmm. oatmeal corner infielders looking for thump suarez josh bell or anthony rizzo who do you like the most out of that trio right now all three going after pick 250 in november drafts might take Suarez. Uh, he has very established flaws in that strikeout rate. Um, but with Rizzo's health, it's a pretty big question mark. Suarez also is uh, in the middle of a park upgrade. Mm-hmm. You know? And so even though Arizona is a neutral park, Seattle's one of the hardest places to hit. It's just cold. You know? The ball doesn't travel as far. Um, although it's a dome, so why that's not a good reason. It must be just be dimensions, atmospheric conditions. Anyway, it plays you, you can you can look at any park factor. It plays it's a hard place to play. So I'll take Suarez. I think I'd actually go Rizzo of that trio. For now you're getting a little more of a discount on him. He's supposed to go through a normal off season of it's a nice park. He's demonstrated that he can, he can hit there. Yeah, basically hits second or third in that Yankees lineup. I think there's a little more there in terms of average because of the park. We saw some really good stuff from Rizzo before the concussion. He hit 304, 376, 505 with 11 homers the first two months of the season. It was not the same after that late May concussion. I 
think I'd go him out of that group because I think the power output's close for the group. Suarez probably leads the, the batting group average in homers, but yeah, you're going to give up a lot. Worst batting average probably. With it's him. hard to get enough power with average that late in the draft too. So I think that's where Rizzo kind of jumps out to me. From a real-life perspective, Suarez versus Jamer Candelario. Who do you think actually has a better 2024? It's the better all-round fit. Uh, Suarez is projected for 1.6 wins and Candelaria 1. 1.8, 1. 1.9. <laughs> uh, just looking away from the projections defensively, I give it to Suarez. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like Candelaria's like almost got moved off the position in, in Detroit. Like he was playing first. So glove, I give Suarez, uh, Kind of OBP skills, maybe a wash. Uh, contact skills go to Candelario. Power goes to Suarez. So I think I know what the projections say, but I think I'd take Suarez. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at for this year only. I think where it gets complicated is you know, year two, year three. I think Candelario might get that point where you can get a little more out of him for a few years. His offensive Age. profile scares me less. I'm also curious to see, this is one of the park factors that doesn't get discussed probably as much as it should, is what happens with Suarez's K-rate getting out of Seattle? Among the things that ballpark in Seattle does, the three-year rolling average for the Mariners ballpark, T-Mobile Park, it's a 110 strikeout factor. It's tied for second with the Brewers. The only park that boosts strikeouts more is the Trop. And we know that you know Willie Adames is among the players that have talked about how difficult it is to to see Tampa. the ball and hit there. So And he went to Milwaukee, who's number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Milwaukee's right there, tied, tied for second with the Mariners. But the thing is, Chase Field has a 95 park factor for K's. So it's a pretty big difference where you know Suarez is likely a 30% K rate guy in a park like Seattle. Maybe you knock that down 28, 29%. It's only a handful of K's over a season, but maybe it just helps him age a little more gracefully since the quality of the contact is still there. You know, the swing decisions, he's not chasing pitches outside the zone at an alarming rate. He's still doing that at sort of a career norm sort of level. I wonder if just getting out of Seattle kind of stabilizes his offensive profile for a little bit longer. There's a, a club option for 2025 on that deal. So it's possible like he's in Arizona for two years. 28 or something, you know, 27. He's just reverses the aging for a year or two. You yeah, know? nudges the average Maybe. up eight to 10 points or something in the process. It, on the margins, it matters. I just thought it was. It's a. It's just a weird thing, the idea of park factors for strikeouts. You'd think that strikeouts are very, you know, the pitcher and the catcher and what's the park going to do. But these things are mostly accounted for. It's, you know, you, you, they, you, there are, I will say this, I do think there are park factors for, for, for strikeouts. I think that, that that exists. And I think that the reason it exists is multifaceted. You've got the batter's eye. So behind the pitcher, there's different colored materials. Some people have ivy. Some people allow people to sit closer to the batter's eye. And so I think in Houston, that was a deal where like there's actually a, a like people seated kind of close to where the ball comes out from the pitcher's hand. And so we, the reason you have the batter's eye is to give a background for that. You know, you're looking for the ball release. Um, so pitchers, the batter's eye is one of the ways. Um, pitchers brought up just last year to me that like mounds are different i don't know if mounds can be really different if mlb's on top of like policing these things but 
their subjective feel almost becomes more important than the reality. Because if you're standing on a mound, and they said some of it was like how much space there is behind home plate. So do you feel like you're on top of home plate or do you feel like, oh, this is a big park? Or, and do you like it if it's a big park? You know what I mean? So like uh, how they feel on the mound is one thing. Uh, lighting is one. When we talked to Willie Adamas, he said that they had LED lighting. And that was something that uh, Matt Olson said too, is that like when you have like uh, LED lighting, you kind of, you just, you there's a shadow on the ball almost. And it's almost like, you only see the top half of the ball lit up, you mm-hmm. know, and the bottom half is kind of shadowy. Uh, whereas more ambient kind of sun-based lighting, maybe that maybe that that doesn't happen as much. I don't know. Maybe uh, different kinds of lights give different shadows. So anyway, it's about uh, the batter's perception and the pitcher's perception of that space that they're in. And, uh, and I do believe that it can lead to some parks just being an easier place to strike out. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Those three parks, the Trop, American Family Field, T-Mobile Park, they all have roofs. And I think for the most, I mean, the Tropicana Field, that's not retractable. That's always closed. American Family Field, rarely open because of the weather. And mm-hmm. oh, there are, there, Arizona rarely There open. are clouds 120 miles away. Keep the roof shut. It's like, come on. Like, Arizona, it's like, it's 125 degrees today. Yeah, so I, I just wonder, and, and the odd thing is, it's the strikeouts are less of a problem there. I'd be curious to know if the lighting in the ballpark is something that's actually very different between those two places, given the extremes in that particular park factor. But uh, again, a park factor that I had not thought much about, I think until it was actually Todd Zola who brought it up to me a few years ago when Garrett Cole went from Pittsburgh to Houston, there was a pretty big swing just in the the strikeout park factors between those two places. And I was like, what are you talking about, Todd? That's not a thing. And we went through it. It was like, yeah, that actually is a thing. We should pay closer attention to it because it can actually make a difference, especially for pitchers moving in from one good one good spot to a bad spot. Uh, worst place for Ks, of course, Coors Field. Not a surprise, right? But that's the other... Yes, I hadn't a, talked about... atmospheric the, conditions, right? The way your pitches move can change from park to park can two. affect your... Yeah, and maybe that's why the dom- domes are... You're saying they're good for strikeouts? Maybe... They boost maybe, Ks, yeah. Think well, about pitch design... Them. Think about pitch design, modern pitch design. You're trying to hit certain like movement patterns, right? And you're like, I want this to move like this and this and this. Well, what happens in a dome? You kind of, the pitches move the way you expect them to because there's no atmosphere. It's more consistency, yeah. Right. So that might, maybe that favors the pitcher because the pitcher's like, oh, yeah, I did get the plus, you know, 18, you know, and I got the minus five and, you know, got all the different movement patterns he wanted. So I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so more park factors chatter uh, throughout the off season. And speaking of Seattle, you know, we we were talking a lot about George Kirby from uh, first pitch Arizona, and I get the sense that Kirby is going to be that early round pitcher that creeps up and creeps up and creeps up. And by the time you get to March, if you're playing in a very competitive league, high stakes league, whatever it might be, it's going to take even more to get George Kirby then than it does right now. And he's not cheap right now, to be clear. I mean, he's going to maybe end up top 10. And yeah, very good chance he's top 10 among starters ADP-wise because he's eight, like kind six, of on the, on the cusp of that already. Why do we love Seattle pitchers? Like Part of it is the park factors, right? They're, mm. they're good pitchers, but they're also in a g- good environment, a great environment for pitching, given that it you know, suppresses homers, but it also boosts strikeouts. And you take the skills they have, you take the quality of the team they have, you take the quality of the bullpen they have, all of the secondary factors are also good behind them. I was starting to think that you could, with the right sort of 
roster construction opportunity, mostly like an auction salary cap draft situation, you could probably stack Seattle pitching. Couldn't do it in a snake because Luis Castillo is going at the end of round two right now in a 15-team league. Kirby's going at the end of three, so you have to push Kirby all the way to the beginning of three if you want to do it. But I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's such a great place to pitch. All those factors are in place right now where you could end up with their three best starters and you might be really happy with how your roster plays out over the course of the year if you're thinking about going aggressive early with pitching anyway. Yeah, I mean, the entire rotation last year was fourth in ERA with a 389 ERA. Um, and uh, good peripherals to boost to to support it, and that includes, uh, you know, starts that you wouldn't have to include uh, necessarily in your fantasy situation because it includes starts from Trent Thornton and Tommy Malone, and ten starts from Marco Gonzalez with a five two two ERA that you wouldn't necessarily start on your team. Uh, so yeah, if you if you pared it down to Castillo, Kirby, Gilbert, and Wu. Uh, you'd probably have something like a 3-4, 3-5 ERA in the next year. Bryce Miller, a lot of strikeouts. You're woo over Miller choosing between those two, right? Because they're going around the same time, like in that 180 to 200 range. Yeah, I think so, because I love Bryce Miller's four seam, but the rest of the package is he's still trying to figure it out. I love both of them, uh, but he still hasn't. Right now, he's the strange four seam cutter and uses the sweeper as like a to steal strikes. So it's like really he's a four seam cutter guy with a with a sideways curveball he uses sometimes. And uh, Brian Wu, you look at him and you think, oh, he's a two pitch pitcher, but he's actually a four seam two seam sinker. Uh, he's a four seam two seam sweeper gyro slider guy. So he in fact has four pitches. And I think that they he's almost at a better place in terms of figuring out how to place those like use those four pitches in tandem. Whereas, you know, like if you're selling me on a fastball cutter guy, I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's almost like, uh, it's a very Strider-esque like kind of attempt. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk. We've talked about how often Strider gets away with missing in the heart of the zone. It takes a ridiculous fastball. To be able to do that. And I don't think. Maybe Bryce Miller. Does he have that good of a fastball? Well, you know, people, we did have a question about fastball shape. Yeah. And uh, the the interesting thing for him is, you know, the one thing that's annoying is you're going to go to Brooks Baseball. You're going to go to Savant. You're going to go to Alex Chamberlain's, uh, you know, uh, pitcher leaderboard on Tableau. Um, all those are great places to go, but if you do those things, then each of them is going to have a different way of describing movement. So, you know, if you go to Brooks, you look at, uh, Bryce Miller's, uh, you know, a fastball movement. This is Brooks baseball. Um, you can see that he has a 9.9, uh, inch vertical movement on a 95 mile power fastball. So nine is about average. So already, you know, He's got above average vertical movement. Then you can look over at the vertical release column and see, oh, he has a sub six foot release point. So now you're saying, okay, this is a guy who releases the ball from a lower release point and has above average ride. That's a really good combo. So that's a way you could look at Brooks and see it. Another way you can do it is you can go over at Baseball Savant 
and you can see uh, Bryce Miller, they have some color-coded stuff. So uh, this is this is probably uh, you know an easier way to understand things, but you can look at what they've got here, the vertical movement uh, and horizontal movement. They've got it color-coded, so you can look at his four-seamer and see, oh, he's got three inches of vertical movement over average given his release point. Um, I think it's, I think they consider release point, but he's got three inches of vertical movement and it's helpful because it got a nice bright red coloring. You can say, oh, that's, that's good. I know that is good. Um, and then, you know, if you're talking like, you know, uh, induced vertical break, which is IVB, which is sort of uh, pitching coach talk, um, you can go over to, uh, Alex Chamberlain's, uh, pitcher let's say it's called like a pitch leaderboard he's got uh this is version pitch leaderboard version five uh and you can go to specs and you can do something like uh sort for vertical break and here on his i know that he has actually um looked at uh vertical he's adjusted for release point um and again, the number is going to be totally different. So it was a 9.9 on Brooks. It was an 11.9 on Baseball Savant. And uh, Bryce Miller is 18.4 vertical induced vertical break. Now, uh, anything above 18 is good. Uh, he's got this induced vertical break of 18.4, and he's got the low. Uh, he's got the low release point. So that's another way to understand shape. But when we talk about fastball shape, we're talking about sort of the geometric shape from release to to the plate and like the good fastballs have that have a straight line almost in terms of watching it it's super hard it's super hard because you're watching mostly for like batter reactions it's really hard to tell but i guess sometimes you can tell that like the ball kind of went straight as opposed to like went down but that's it's really hard especially if they're like going to different locations at the plate and stuff you know but i think it's super hard to scout with your eyes and i i tend towards if you can't measure it you don't know it and uh that's i'm biased in that direction what i would love <laughs> is if all the people could get together and just have one number for us that, that, would, be that would help that would I, that would, help, <laughs> would help many of us understand it a little better and to know oh i'm on this leaderboard and it it means the same as the other leaderboard because there's a standard, but because there's a kind of a different point that throws are all based off of, you have these extra complications. So, like, what types of shape are best? Well, you know, ride is always good. Like that's that's something we've talked about for a long time. Part of what makes I think for me seeing ride on television difficult, you get different camera angles, and mm -hmm. you know, with pitchers throwing on a mound, like it, it's. There's kind of an illusion to it. I think the way you described it, a good ride is more like a, what looks like a straight fastball on TV is actually a good ride. But if you were sitting mm -hmm. behind the plate, the perspective is different. And I don't know if a straight fastball in person probably isn't as good. Probably doesn't have as much ride as you think. So it's like where you're watching the game also kind of impacts what it's going to look like while you're trying to watch fastball movements. I find that to be really challenging as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, watch a Joe Ryan fastball. It is a great pitch, and it also is a pitch that he uses over and over in the top of the zone that people hit for homers. So, you know, if you're, like, eye scouting, you'd be like, he didn't have a good fastball. 
I just saw him give up a homer, you know? And it's just like all these straight things at the top of the zone. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty good and he uses it so much that yes, people do hit homers off it. So uh, I find uh, I find it hard to see some of this stuff uh, with my eyes. And I, that's why I respect, you know, the heck out of scouts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking at the numbers because it's 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 better than me trying to be like, oh yeah, <laughs> like this guy's cut of his jib. The job is really hard, by the way. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone knows, but it, it's a very very difficult job. So thank you for that question, Isaac. One thing, w- one thing I would say that I like about Savant and about uh, Alex Chamberlain's thing is it gives you a sense of where they sit. Um, like. Anything that's like extreme, anything that's at the top of a leaderboard or at the bottom of a leaderboard is usually good and because you're just not in the middle of the leaderboard. And so when you go over to Alex Chamberlain's leaderboard, you can sort. And I just did minimum 500 fastballs, sort by ride. There's uh, Bryce Miller in the top 20. And most of the pitchers with fastballs in that top 20, like Felix Bautista is number one, you know. Uh, Christian Javier is right there by Bryce Miller. So usually it means that it's a good fastball and you can kind of do some some like comping there where you look at the release point, you look at the, the, the movement. And if you look at Savant, it says how much percentage better than average that number is. So getting a sense of like anything that's... So sometimes good shape can just be something that's just totally different. You know, uh, look at uh, Yenier Cano's sinker. And you sort different leaderboards and you'll be like, wow, this is, it has like the most sink of any sinker. That's probably good. It's probably a good pitch. Yeah. At the very least, the the ends of the leaderboard are going to give you some reasons to dig into some videos. Hey, wait, what's going on here? Uh, What happens when this Mm. pitch is thrown? What did it do for results? What did it do for for whiffs? You know, how do pitchers, how do do hitters react to this pitch? I think that'd be the thing you'd start to look at trying to pair what the leaderboards, what the numbers say versus like what your eyes tell you uh, when it comes to uh, fastball shape and and effectiveness. But uh, thanks a lot for that question, Isaac. I think at some point in the future, what we would like to do, again, we're, we're people that have a lot of ideas in those ideas folders, to have some visuals to go along with a conversation like this for YouTube, that's something we think we should make. I, I think there's there's an appetite for that because I think we're all trying to see it and understand it better uh, than just have to go, oh, this is great. The numbers say it's great. It's like, well, yeah, but we want to see it. We want to be able to verify with our eyes that this is as effective and good as uh, the numbers say that it is. Uh, got a couple odds and ends here. I'm just going to get to one because we had a question from Ryan about Shota Imanaga, and his posting is happening soon. I think the last update I saw was like in the coming days. So paperwork is in process. Yeah, I think the news today is that he's, he's posted. Yeah, so he's he's going to be on his way. The question from Ryan was, is there concern that the stuff plus hype for Imanaga is too high considering he was working in a different role? He wasn't necessarily working as a, a regular starter. The best stuff number in the... World Baseball Classic, right? And then there's all the other differences. We talked about players coming over from Japan where the baseball's different. How well does the stuff in his arsenal right now, how does that translate against big league hitters right now out of the box? Like, What are your expectations for Imanaga compared to the other free agent pitchers that we're looking at in this class? Yeah. The the question was right to point out that he kind of Shota 
Imanaga pitched in kind of a hybrid role, was not kind of going six innings at, with this stuff plus. And that, you know, that points to the sample. Uh, I think in the sample, I had 88 pitches from Shota Imanaga and 60 from Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Um, and he beat Yoshinobu Yamamoto by two points. Also, while being in this sort of hybrid reliever type role, that's going to increase your velo. Um, you know, pointing out that he was 93-ish in uh, the WBC, but 91-8 uh, in the regular season. That does point to some of why Imanaga is going to get less, as well as the age, the age factor. You know, it's a five-year difference between them. So, um, you know, that's part of big part of why Imanaga is going to get less. The reason why I still find it intriguing is uh, uh, a couple parts. One, uh, let's say you give him, I don't think it's fair to give him uh, that stuff plus as a reliever because it still was uh, 88 pitches and three appearances. So that's, a, that's okay. So that's 30 pitches. That's a little bit more than your average reliever is more like, you know, like 15 pitches, 20 pitches. So a little bit more. Uh, but let's say you do give him the full reliever thing. The reliever to starter conversion that I found and and has been true for Drew Rasmus and other people in the past has been about five points of stuff plus. Even if you wanted to be aggressive and say it's seven or eight, um, you would still end up with Shota Managa having uh, a better stuff plus than you Darvish and Sandy Alcantara and Christian Javier hmm. in... Uh, in the uh, World Baseball Classic. So uh, I I think it's still super interesting. He's got great like move, pitch movement numbers. He had amazing numbers in NPB last year. I mean, better strikeout minus walk numbers than, than Yoshinobu Yamamoto, uh, Shoto Managa did. So there's a lot of things that are, are good for him. In terms of, you know, what's it gonna look like at 91.8? Um, Maybe Nestor Nestor Cortez's uh, four seam, uh, you know, goes ninety one point six miles an hour, has nineteen vertical uh, IVB. Maybe uh, he could be uh, Nestor Cortez esque. And if you took Nestor Cortez and put him in a different park, I think he'd have uh, he'd have some pretty good numbers. And he had some he had a good year for uh, New York uh, in twenty twenty two. So uh, I'm not saying that they they fit all the way. In fact, I would say that Imanaga is probably going to be better than Cortez because. Yamanaka comes with like plus secondaries as well, you know. Um, whereas Cortez, it's like the cutter is his best second pitch. Yeah, I, I like Yamanaka's going in the 250 range of November drafts because, again, not knowing where he's pitching, not knowing park factors yet, that's a pretty big question. If he does end up in Yankee Stadium, then the excitement level like him a little bit less, <laughs> only a slight jump from where he's going. But he seems like he's undervalued because. You're looking at, this is below, we talked to, I think, in the last episode about McKenzie and Andrew Abbott, some of those guys going in the post-200 range. Imanaga's going in the Reese Olsen, Nick Lodolo, Christopher Sanchez, Reed Detmers. You got Mason I Miller. Mean, there's and a lot of guys I like too. down there. Those are some good names, but I would love to get two or three out of you know that group because I feel like all of them have jobs, you know, are going to give you innings. And if they pop and you're and they're good... Then you keep them on your roster, and if they're not, you're you're streaming. You're you're picking up the next guy. It's a good a good place to shop. If you jumped him up to the early range of where he's going, it'd be stuff like Mimanaga versus Bailey Ober, 
Sale and Carlos Rodon right there in the pick 180 range. I, I've made these mistakes so many times. Don't don't do it again. Don't. And this do it is again. where I would say, be careful. You can push a guy too hard. Mm-hmm. Like you know, d- like yes, I'm excited about Shota Monaga, but like, would I take him over? Uh, what was the first name you said? That was Bailey Ober. Ober. Yeah, Ober Sale Rodon would be kind of the I upper bound. I mean, that's it's still a it's still an okay place to shop, but like I I'm I'm sure the names above that are 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 more established and you know, and like you're gonna say no to Chris Sale over. Showtime Monica? I don't know. I don't know. I I I had a lot of a lot of flyers on Chris Sale in twenty twenty three, and it was uh, yes. But you ca- you have to remember you cannot put somebody you cannot put someone in the do not draft box just because you're angry. Oh, I'm not. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> just disappointed. Oh, that's a parent line. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had that one ready since the first time my parents told me they were disappointed in me. It's like, oh, that's so much worse than you being mad at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh, just. Sale got his strikeout and walk numbers right last year. 29% and six and 7%. Yeah. I mean, if you just kind of, if you just say, ah, well, he wasn't, wasn't great in terms of homers again, which has been the case most of the time he's been in Boston. Because the velo has dropped in Boston. Yeah. yeah. So that's worked against him. Uh, pretty pretty bad numbers in terms of uh, left on base percentage too looking at that he's just under 70% last year career 76.9 so maybe some bad luck in that regard too you can start to explain why Boston the ERA bullpen. came in a little high Boston bullpen maybe how, how many innings though for sale I, I think it's appropriate that sale and Rodon are right next to each other because there are yeah. huge questions about their innings talent no doubt but Range of outcomes is extremely wide for both. What can you expect inning-wise from Imanaga? Yeah, I was looking at his workloads too. I mean, it was 148 plus like 11 more. So yeah, he's right in like the 159, right, right 143, around the 160 mark is usually where he, he ends up. I suppose I might trust him to have more innings than those other two guys. I mean, I was going to put Rodon and, and sail around the over-under around uh, 140. If you get 140 from those guys, you're pretty happy. Man, Rodon. Rodon seems like really like it's. I think like putting a number like 140 out there almost doesn't make sense. It's like it's going to be like 50 or it's going to be 180. Look, I, I know reading numbers on the podcast is not a a, <laughs> a great. <laughs> do, 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 do. Last year. Six, Time for 60. reading numbers. <laughs> great, great segment. It's an award-winning podcast because they read numbers as well as anybody. 64 and a third in year one with the Yankees. 178 in his only year with the Giants in 2022. 132 and two-thirds coming back off of major injuries with the White Sox. Only seven and two-thirds in the lost season. Whatever, throw that away. 34 and two-thirds in 2019. 120 and two-thirds back in 2018. 69 and a third back in 2017. And a couple full-ish seasons with 165 and 139 and a third way back in 16 and 15. surprised they gave him $162 million over six years. I mean... Is this how we're going to look at the Blake Snell deal later? Even Blake Snell's injury history isn't this scary. Rodon, I'm glad he got paid. He's a great pitcher. He's been through a ton health-wise. Like To see him get back and to get to that level again was great. I guess the other problem with, with Rodon versus Sale... When we saw Rodon this year, it just wasn't working the same way, right? The K rate was down. Home run rate was way up. 
I'm not saying that's who he is, but I think your proof of concept on Chris Sale that there's still a very good pitcher there through the things he's gone through, you have more to lean on with Sale than you do with Rodon. Yeah. Brutal. <laughs> so if I'm choosing today, I'm choosing Sale between the two at the price, and I'm hopefully learning my lesson with the guys that have dealt with devastating injuries and missed a lot of time because that group in particular has been uh, tough for me in the last year or so. You got anything else on your mind before we go? No, I wonder, uh, you know, now we've had a lot of the mid-level deals go and I'm looking at this uh, list of available pitchers and it's it's Blake Snell and uh, Shohei Otani and then it's just a lot of kind of sorting through the one and two year deals. Uh, maybe Lugo gets three, maybe Gilito gets three, but like, I think it's going to be a lot of one and two year deals after that. Maybe Stroman gets three. Eduardo Rodriguez is going to get three Jordan Montgomery, but I'm not as excited about those names. I'm excited about snow and Otani to figure out what that's going to happen there. So it, it, it seems to me we've in a weird way, the middle class has signed out first. And so now we get uh, maybe a winter meetings full of, all the top names. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, Blake Snell, Shoei Otani, Bing Bang Boom, maybe a Soto trade. Maybe some bats too. Man. Get a few of the position players Bellinger, going. Yeah. Bellinger, Chapman, Reese Hoskins. Love to see where those guys start to go. That'd be, that'd be great. I think we're lining up for a good meetings as far as uh, some things happen. Just because we're getting big enough moves now, you know, the, the seal has been broken. Teams are actively trying to get deals done even if they're wondering what's going to happen with the very top guys. I think you nailed that a little bit earlier on in the show. And we saw some trades that sort of set the set the like the groundworks for later. Like for example, the Braves mm-hmm. clearing out all the players that was an arbitration, but it was also roster spots, so they're in a good spot for I think a Dylan Cease trade uh might make a lot of sense for them uh cuz they don't have their according to whatever their rubric is, I don't know if they have a ton more money. But they do have assets. They do have roster spots. So, you know, I could see a cease trade happening there. Uh, we've seen some other teams kind of, uh, even the, something as small as the uh, San Diego trade for Scott Barlow for uh, Yaradilla Santos, like that's that saved them $6 million. That's part of their work for, you know, are we going to trade Soto or are we going to try and find three starting pitchers for like $15 million? I think they can actually find three starters for $15 million. I don't know if those starters will be healthy and productive all season, but I think they can do it. <laughs> I mean, there seems to be like a, a fair amount of supply at the bottom of the market. If they want to go with Alex Wood and Hunjin Ryu and Wade Miley, they might, and they could strike gold. I mean, they did it last you, you might year. laugh at the, some of those names I just put throw out there, but like, you know, was Seth Lugo, you know, was that Michael, Seth Lugo, Michael Waka last year? That was, you know, from the same bin. That's why I think they might be able to get away with it. They just did it last year. And why, why, why break up this band if you don't have to? If you can find a way to keep it together for one more year, I think you try to keep it together for one more year. Especially given there is some upper minor strengths in, in pitching. I don't know. I don't have movement numbers on these guys, so I can't fully form an opinion. But the minor league pitcher of the year uh, was in double A and Snelling is right there. So like uh, he was the he was the minor league pitcher of the year, I think. So you've got some young arms, so you could just buy some older arms. And if they go bad, hopefully one of those guys is ready. Yeah, yeah. Could, go, could go young if they have to uh, once they uh, get to at least the early... I don't know, 
like the early part of the summer, maybe is when we'll start to see some of those prospects get a look if uh, they can find a way to keep it afloat in the rotation. Until then, uh, we're going to go. And, and as a result of the turkey tips, we gave you extra time at the back. So, you know, <laughs> sorry for the turkey tips. If you didn't want those, we'll try to save them again for pre-Thanksgiving. They're a little more helpful, I think, going into the holiday than <laughs> coming out of the holiday. But sometimes you get to debrief to really know like what, what worked this year, what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, if you hear this on Monday, Cyber Monday, the 27th of November, still have the $1 a month deal at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That goes away at the end of the night. So be sure to get that as soon as possible. If you don't have a subscription already, you can find Eno on Twitter at Unoceris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you've got a question for a future episode, ratesandbarrels at gmail.com is the best way to send those our way. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you next week. Thanks for listening. 